Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. We have a lot of studies this year um, working on field stuff, um, not exposing hives to the bacteria or anything, but doing a lot more um, vaccinated queens in hives and watching how they do. So it's an interesting thing to work with when you're working with a pathogen like that. That's so deadly. Um, you have to be really careful about how you're testing it. Welcome to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 154, Vaccines for Honeybees. In this episode, I'm talking with Amy Floyd of Dallin Animal Health. Amy works as a field technician and in beekeeper relations while traveling around the U.S. in a self-converted camper van with her dog. She obtained her bachelor's degree in wildlife conservation and management and master's degree in entomology and insect science from the University of Arizona. During the conversation, Amy fills us in on the honeybee industry, why honeybees are important to the ecosystem and our food supply, and what stressors are threatening honeybees. She also details how the AFB vaccine works, why it is needed, and if it is safe for humans. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode and on the line today I have Amy Floyd and Amy's going to be talking about something new and exciting when it comes to news here uh, with honeybees. Uh, Amy, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. Great. Uh, so first, can we just, can you just give us a, a quick sort of primer on uh, the difference between honeybees and native bees here in the United States, seeing as though um, we're going to be focusing mostly on honey honeybees? Sure. Uh, so honeybees, um, this species of honeybees, um, Apis mellifera, are not um, native to the United States. Um they're from the old world, Europe, Africa, um, and they came over in various forms um, with settlers actually um, to produce wax so they could make candles so they would have light. Um, everyone thinks it's for the honey, but it, it was actually for, for the wax. Um, anyways, um, so they're, they're non-native. Um, honeybees are a cool um, species or a sub group of bees because they collect honey. Not every bee does that. Um, and yeah, there, there's 20,000 species of bees. So honeybees are their own little part of that. So given that honeybees are not um, native to the United States, the, what is it that we use them for? You mentioned like we have wax, right? Beeswax um, and honey production. What do we use them for and why are they important as an ecosystem driver here in the United States? Yeah, so honeybees 
since they are not native, they actually are really beneficial for us in the agriculture system because they can pollinate a lot of plants here that are also not native. Um, you know, one of the biggest crops that honeybees pollinate are almonds and almonds are also native to the old world. They are not native to the United States. So um, without honeybees here, that whole industry couldn't exist here in the United States. So um, that is their main purpose in the United States is to um, pollinate our crops and provide food for, for us. So there there's there's been news reports out there of like entire colonies right like there there's an industry around honeybees where people are raising honeybees they're literally putting them on semis and taking them from farm to farm or orchard to orchard and overnight the entire colony will just basically die uh, what is it that's sort of threatening honeybees what are the stressors that are are causing issues yeah so I don't, I can't even remember the year now, but <clears throat> colony collapse disorder was the, the key word that was going around and um, it was really freaking people out and people's hives were just kind of, um, like you said, dis uh, dissolving overnight. Um, and it wasn't even that all the bees were dead, it was that they were gone. Um, and a lot of research, a lot of work has gone into kind of figuring out what was going on with that. And it turns out, um, that it was not just one thing. It was a lot of things. Um, so honeybees have to deal with a lot of stressors, one of which is being put on semis and driven across the country at not ideal um, times of year necessarily. Um, the almond bloom happens in February. So bees have to be moved there in January. It's still kind of cold in January. Um, so moving them stresses them somewhat. But more than that, there's pesticide exposure. Um, the pesticides were a really big issue because they were being sprayed at inopportune times. So they were spraying crops with um, pesticides when they were flowering, which is also when bees are going to be there. Um, and they were also spraying them during the day, which is when bees are going to be there. Um, so a lot of those kind of policies have changed where if you're going to spray for pesticides, you spray at night. Um, or you, and <clears throat> that gives it time to dry. And a lot of those pesticides were affecting bees because they were wet and then they couldn't fly, um, and they were eating it and whatnot. So, um, a lot of those policies timings have been figured out with pesticides. There's still other issues because they do end up digesting some of those pesticides in the pollen that they're eating or nectar, but, um, we've sort of figured out the pesticide issue. Um, and then one of the big, big stressors on honeybees is actually a parasite called the Varroa mite. Um, and it's Varroa destructor, which has a very ominous name, um, but that mite um, affects bees at all levels of its development. Um, it'll feed on the larval form, the pupal form, um, it'll chew out of the cap, and then that pupa will die. Um, and then they also feed on the hemolymph of adult bees, and these mites are are not just like this tiny little parasite that you can't see. They're huge. They're, it's like having like a Yorkie dog kind of stuck to you all day. Like that's the size comparison, you know? Um, they're annoying and they transmit a bunch of viruses. Um, and so those are what a lot of the hive loss comes from are 
um, these mites that just, um, they, the bee, beekeepers call them mite bombs. They find one hive that has a ton of mites and bees drift. Um, you know, most of the time they're oriented to their hive, but they do drift. And so if they have mites on them, they go to another hive, mites fall off, they infect that hive. So um, they're easily spread. They have, their um, evolutionary cycle is really fast. And so they become resistant to every treatment that comes out. And so they're just something that's really hard to manage once you have them and you're guaranteed to have them at this point. Um, so mites are a huge thing. Um, and then there are other pathogens. There's chalk brood, which is a fungal disease that kills larvae. And then there are brood diseases, um, or brood bacterial diseases that, um, like American fowl brood and European fowl brood that also cause death in the larval stage um, and are very contagious. So it's kind of all of these big stressors all combined that were like hives were getting overly stressed and they were they were leaving. And that's that's the theory. I don't think anyone ever like definitively said this is what colony collapse disorder was, but um, it was this like huge combination of all of these different things that were just stressing hives to a point that they they couldn't get rid of the all of it, so they just left. So basically, it's like pick one uh, and try to find a solution to it. Um, so your company uh, developed a vaccine, picked one, ended up developing a vaccine. Can you tell us a little bit um, about the AFB vaccine work and how it's implemented and, and all that that good stuff, how it works to help these bees? Sure. So American fowl brood is a bacterial pathogen. Uh, the bacteria is Panathocillus larvae, um, and it's spore forming. And so, and spores can live forever in like a vegetative state, not forever, but um, I think it's over 50 years, I think is what, what we have recorded right now. Um, I could be slightly off on that, but it's decades. And they, they don't go away. They can live in soil. They can live on wax. They can live on wood. They can live on trees. They can live anywhere. And so if a bee picks it up on their flight back, they fall into the dirt, then they crawl back in the hive, then there's the spores get back in there. And if that spore gets fed to a larva, uh, that one, <clears throat> I think they need like six to 10 spores to infect them. But if that larva dies from that infection, that spore germinates and then it reproduces and can be up to 2.5 billion spores in that one larva. And then bees try are very hygienic. They're constantly cleaning their hive. And so they go to clean that larva out of that cell and out of the hive and get spores all over them. And then they go pack food or go feed a lar another larva and it just rapidly spreads. Um, so it's super contagious. It's very deadly when beekeepers do get it. Um, and there's no treatment for it. So um, antibiotics have been used here and there with beekeepers to um, suppress it. Um, but it doesn't, it does not kill the spores by any means. And um, antibi antibiotics aren't approved in a lot of areas and they can leave residues in honey. So then you can't use, sell your honey afterwards. Um, there's a lot of issues with using antibiotics as well. So there was kind of this hole in the industry where there was no option for beekeepers if they had American fowl brood. Their option was to burn their hives with their bees. Um, that's the only way you can kill those spores. And just 
I, I can't even imagine having to like dig a hole, push all of my hives and my bees into that hole and light it on fire and bury it. Like that is, it's just depressing and, and awful. Um, so there's this hole, there's a, there was a need that there was, that wasn't being met. Um, and bacteria is, a, is one of the easier things to work with in a lab and to create some of this, um, these vaccine technologies with. So um, we started messing with it and created a vaccine for that. So that was why we, we why we cho- chose AFB. All right. So um, we have the issue now. So um, now we have a way to solve it. Um, how do we administer vaccines to bees? Uh, I, I can't imagine that the beekeepers go and, you know, with this these little needles and, and injecting them like a flu shot. So how does that work? Sure. So the back the, it's called a bacterian. It's the vaccine is dead bacteria. It's the dead spores of, um, of AFB and it's in an aqueous solution. And that vaccine liquid just gets mixed into queen candy, which is kind of a, a fondant like candy. Um, that is used when beekeepers are shipping queens it's and um, they use it to release queens into hives so that the bees will slowly chew it out and smell her get used to her so it's something that's commonly used in queen operations and beekeeping operations so the vaccines mixed into that candy um, and then workers queens don't eat on their own Um, they're fed by workers and so the workers eat the vaccinated candy digest it it goes into their hypopharyngeal glands in their head, which are what make royal jelly. And then they feed that royal jelly to the queen and the pieces of that, the vaccine have made it through that whole system um, and then get into her digestive system. They're absorbed into her fat bodies and then those fat bodies feed her ovaries. And it, it's attached to a protein called vitelligenin and that is an egg yolk protein. And so that gets into the egg yolk where the larva is that needs to be protected. So while it's in its egg, it's being exposed to this. And then when it hatches, it has that, um, it's been primed. It's it's seen that bacteria before, its immune system knows this is bad, I can fight it. What is the success rate for the you know this type of vaccine? Is it you know pretty high? Um, that it's going to work if you introduce it to your colony or colony of bees? Sure. Um, so we have our, our efficacy study shows 30 to 50% efficacy. Um, that being said, we, in that challenge experiment, we used a very high number of spores to challenge these larvae. So like I said earlier, it only takes six to 10 spores to infect a larva. And we were doing these challenge experiments with 2000 spores per larva. Um, So they were getting a really high dose. So um, that 30 to 50% efficacy maybe sounds low, but it's definitely relevant. It will, um, there's, they were being overexposed. Um, So it's more, I think the main thing to, I've, I've talked to a few beekeepers and it's, it's a preventative rather than a, a treatment. And so we don't want beekeepers thinking, oh, I have AFB. I can use this to make it go away. It, it may lessen it in that hive, but 
Um, it's more of a like, let's make sure this hive doesn't get sick from AFB. Yeah, I mean, in a, a study like that, I mean, that or a challenge like that, that seems to me like you've basically just like set off a nuclear bomb of spores uh, and getting, yeah. you know, 50% success rate. Like that's that's probably pretty good. Yeah, it's hard with these kinds of pathogens too to do research on them because you can't do it at a hive level because you can't expose a hive to that bacteria ethically. That's just wrong. So we have to do it in a lab um, and to, to, to make sure we're seeing an effect and make sure that effect is what where the vaccine is causing that effect, you know, is, is to do it that way. So um, we have a lot of studies this year um, working on field stuff, um, not exposing hives to the bacteria or anything, but doing a lot more um, vaccinated queens in hives and watching how they do. So it's an interesting thing to work with when you're working with a pathogen like that. That's so deadly. Um, you have to be really careful about how you're testing it. So uh, since since bees make something uh, that humans <laughs> ingest, right? Like they're making honey. Uh, we have to talk about, um, you know, the safety of this vaccine. Like, is it if the beekeepers are using this, if they use this vaccine, can they still sell their honey for human consumption? Um, is it something that's being transmitted to humans? You know, what's the, what's the take on the safety of this? Sure. Uh, it's, it's very safe. It is safe for humans. It is safe for the Queens. It's safe for the bees. Um, we've had, um, that was one of the main things, um, for getting the USDA conditional approval, was safety. We time and time again proved that safety. Um, the vaccine is never going into the hive um, itself. It is only being fed to a queen outside of the hive through via workers. And then that queen goes into a hive and she is vaccinated and her larvae are vaccinated. Um, but the vaccine itself is not in there. Um, and even if it were, it would be perfectly safe. Um, it's just dead bacteria. Um, and that bacteria is present in hives all the time anyway, just unknowing. So um, even if it were to be in the hive, it is it wouldn't cause any kind of issues with humans or honey production or um, anything like that. So what does this mean um, for long-term? I mean, is this going to sort of settle a lot of a lot of the issues that beekeepers have and it's going to sort of stabilize things within the industry is that at least is that the goal so afb has um it's played a big role in hive death in the in the past um like i said earlier right now the main stressor on honeybees is the varroa mite um and but it's really hard for bees to deal with that stressor when they're dealing with other stressors. And so the hope for this vaccine is that it can take away some of that bacterial stress that, that the bees are trying to work with. Because even if you're not seeing symptoms of AFB or EFB, those bacteria are usually present in a hive anyway at a, at a subclinical level. And so this vaccine, our hope is that it can take away that stress. So bees aren't part of their immune system isn't trying to deal with that and mites. They can, that part can go away and they can focus on, on some of the other stuff. Cause we can't, we can't fix everything in one. Um, but we're, we're also future Dallin 
is um, working on developing other vaccines to, to face some of these other big things that bees are facing too. So this is kind of just the beginning um, and hopefully in the future we can have something like that that can um, kind of uh, fix a few things at the same time. Well, I think this is great news uh, from what I'm hearing, <laughs> right? Uh, and, you know, especially someone who uh, works uh, tangentially to the to the culinary field and, and understanding how food gets from farm to, to table, um, anything that we can make it more efficient and make it easier for the people involved, uh, I think is going to be a great thing. And then, you know, we're losing pollinators uh, all over the country. So if we can, even though it's not a native pollinator, if we can sort of make things a little bit easier for one version of pollinators, maybe that also um, reduces some stress on some other pollinators as well. So uh, Amy, thank you for coming on and, and explaining this. I'm very excited to hear about this and um, hopefully uh, this is just the first step in many positive directions for honeybees. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're really excited. Um, I'm glad uh, you gave me an outlet to talk about it. And that will do it for today. I want to thank you for listening and I want to thank Amy for coming on and talking about this new novel vaccine. Uh, you know, I, I know in the last couple of years, uh, since the pandemic, we've just been inundated with this idea of vaccines and hearing about it all the time. Uh, but this is something that if you're a beekeeper and you've ever dealt with a colony collapse, this is something that may make your life a whole lot easier once it's made available for, you know, the public. I'll put in air quotes there. Um, you know, when we think about, you know, bees, and this is something that's become much more mainstream to talk about and think about, but when, when we think about bees, um, we don't always think of it in terms of like, we need them, right? Like that, there's been this big push for pollinators and, uh, you know, and doing what's best for pollinators. And the reason why is because they're so integral in not just the ecosystem, but also in our food supply, right? Like there are, you know, semi-trucks of you know, bees traveling uh, up and down the interstates, going from farm to farm uh, and being released, you know, a couple days or, or weeks at a time uh, so that they can pollinate, you know, to, so that we can have our almonds or we can have our oranges or grapefruits, uh, you know, all those, you know, apples, all those things. And it's all because we don't have enough pollinators on the landscape. We need to supplement it with this honeybee industry. Uh, that has, you know, sort of cropped up from that. And, you know, when we're seeing this colony collapse syndrome happening and we're losing uh, all these bee these honeybees, uh, that's threatening our food supply as well. So to be able to come up with uh, a vaccine that is, you know, given to the bees in, in the colony, uh, it's nothing that gets transferred to us. All it's doing is just keeping these bees a little bit uh, healthier, um, you know, that is something that is going to be huge uh, for anyone out there that has their own bees and uh, utilizes them. So this is one of those like crazy big scientific breakthroughs. And that is absolutely awesome to learn more about. 
I want to leave you with just a couple reminders. Uh, the first one is make sure that you click on the link in the episode details to visit wildrooted.com. Uh, you have that free uh, free shipping discount code that you can go ahead and use as a uh, conservation unfiltered podcast listener. The other thing I want you to be aware of and and know is that uh, at in the uh, at the end of July, the last weekend of July, the Keystone Elk Country Alliance will be having their annual Elk Expo, and once again. Uh, I have partnered with them to podcast about the day. Uh, And on Saturday, July 28th, we will be, uh, actually, we will be podcasting live for eight straight hours. And uh, if you can't make it up there, don't worry, you can still take part in it. Uh, We will be broadcasting that live stream on YouTube and Facebook. So make sure you're checking out those uh, streams, and then uh, I will, of course, release some of those uh, snippets and episodes later on after. So uh, if you can make it to Benazette uh, the last weekend of July, I highly recommend you do it. It's a great event. If you can't, make sure you're checking out that live stream. Until the next episode, I want you with this wonderful, great weather outside to get outside Take someone with you, and of course, stay wild. Just like you, I've been on a search for ways to tell the world I'm passionate about the outdoors. Things like a beautifully designed sticker, a well-fitting hat, or a comfortable shirt, all while working to help the outdoor community. Well, I think I finally found a company who checks all the boxes. Wild Rooted is an eco-conscious, family-owned company with a wide range of products, from stickers to shirts printed with algae ink and hat patches, key fob holders, and keychains made with a plant-based leather alternative called Miram. They have an inspirationally designed product for you. Not only that, but 10% of all profits are donated to our wonderful national parks and forests. It doesn't get any better than that. Head over to wildrooted.com and use CU Free Ship 23 at checkout to get your gear. That's CU F R E E S H I P 23 at wildrooted.com.